1: first impulse when you see somebody doing something that you think they shouldn't be doing or you see somebody doing something you think is potentially dangerous. And, and I, I think it's safe to say that for most of us, if not all of us, our first impulse is to make a rule or enforce a rule. And There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a natural human impulse. I think we can see this natural human impulse on display all around us through the signs that we have all around us. I went to rock, walk, did a walk around the area where I live and I found a few signs. Maybe you're familiar with these. Somebody did something that they didn't want, you know, you know right? Point, pointed it out. Somebody did something. Don't do that. So my question here this morning is, how well do those work in stamping out ba- uh, those unwanted behaviors? I mean, may, yeah, it can maybe reduce it a little bit, but does it actually get rid of it? I mean, you still have people knocking on your door wanting to sell you something. You still have dogs doing their business on your lawn. And you still, you recognize the building behind that. We still get people climbing the fence that we just built and taking a shortcut across our property. <laughs> One thing I know that if, is if making and enforcing rules actually worked, my job as a counselor would be a lot easier. I mean it would look something like this Glenn.
0: Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but Truly, thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. Uh, so what what you're saying is you're uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. H- you're there. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry. Stop it? Yes. S-T-O-P, new word, (laughs) I-T. So, what are you saying? (laughs) You you know, it's funny. I I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. (laughs) Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, 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 you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. Yes. Then stop it! I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since
1: no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, we, we don't go there. Just just stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> it's easy, right? Help. That's funny, but not exactly helpful, right? Interestingly... Not only is just saying stop it or just having a rule for something not always helpful, uh, it also can you often have the exact opposite effect. I mean, true confessions, it, when you tell me to not do something or if I see a sign that says don't do something, I want to do it <laughs> just because it's there, right? And I know I'm not the only one in the room. And in fact, I know I'm not the only one because it doesn't take long on, to look on the Internet to find pictures of people Oh, disobeying laws and signs, right? You've probably seen some of some things like this. Now look at this one. I don't know if you can read it, but don't cross the yellow line. I would do this, by the way. This would be me, right? Reality is that rules often provoke rebellion. You didn't even think about it until you actually had a sign saying don't do it. And you're like, oh, cool, I think I'll do that. Now, I bring all this up because we're reading through the Bible together as a church, and we're reading through this part of the Bible that has a lot of rules and commands over and over and over, right? Do not do this. Do not do that. Oh, don't even think about doing that. And the effect of it can be, stop it, stop it, stop it, right? And so, just kind of laying it out there, if... Having rules or having signs doesn't actually solve the problem, and and, and may even provoke outright rebellion. Then, why is the Bible full of rules and commands? I think it's a worthwhile question to ask. In fact, that's the question I want us to take a look at today. Specifically, because we're going to have more commands and rules in the reading to come. A lot more. Okay? So, here's what I want to try to do today. First, I want to kind of zoom out and, and see how the, the section of the Bible that we're in right now fits into the overall story of the Bible. And then I want to answer the question, what do we do with all these commands that we find in this part of the Bible? And then finally, I want to specifically address a topic that dominates the commands in the section of the, of the scriptures that we're going to be in this week. So I'm pretty ambitious, so I'm just going to dive in. So first and foremost, and I cannot overstate this, the Bible is not simply an instruction manual or a guide to good living. Now, it has a lot of instructions, absolutely. And it has a lot to say about good living. But that is, it's not its primary purpose. Its primary purpose is to introduce God to us. And in fact, even most importantly, to introduce God's love for us. Now, the Bible primarily comes to us in the form of narrative or story and poetry, especially the Old Testament. That's mostly story and poetry. So when we read it, you kind of need to read it like you're reading a love story. And maybe even better, you're reading a love story while playing a soundtrack of love songs. That's kind of the feel. In fact, I, I think if the Bible would come to us in, in our genres today, I think it might very well come to us, especially the Old Testament, in the form of a country music ballad. Because it's, kind of, it's, it's the messages, it's kind of a yearning love story, this yearning love song story uh, told by an often jilted lover. That's kind of the tone that we, come, that we, that we need to read with. Now the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah in Hebrew, which it was originally written in Hebrew. It was Torah, which now that word is often translated into English as law, and that is uh, that is an appropriate translation. Although I don't think it's the most helpful translation because of how we use the word law today. Now, even though some passages sound like a lot of laws, right? the, the tone behind it, remember the first five books, they're mostly narrative, mostly story that happens to contain some laws. And so we need to read it more like a story than like you'd pull a law textbook off the shelf, right? Not that long ago, a, a friend and a fellow pastor started using, whenever he came across the commands in the Torah, he started calling them God's kind warnings and instructions. And I thought that was helpful to get to, better get to the heart of God in that than the word law. Now, when reading the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, context is king. Okay, context is king. You need to know where you are in the Bible, when you're reading it, before you begin trying to apply it to, to, to your life today. You need to understand its context historically, literarily, what type of literature it is, and culturally. And so when you read Torah, we need to read it that, and understand that it was given to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. Now, we see this in the Torah in several different places, but it's in our reading this week. Verse, in Leviticus 18, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. So who are these instructions for? Well, easy, right? The people of Sunrise Church. Well, no, that's not what it says, right? It's not what it says. Not that it doesn't have anything for us today, and I'm not saying that. But that's not, we weren't the audience that it was first written to, and we need to understand that. It was not written to 21st century century suburban Americans sitting in a church building on Sunday morning. So we need to do the work of saying, okay, well, what's the context that it was written in? What's the culture that it was written in? So the first question you ask, and again, anytime you read the Bible, do this. First of all, who is speaking? Well, this one, it's pretty easy right? The Lord your God. In fact, it's repeated several times, and it's repeated several times as you read through the passages this week. Okay, so this is the Lord. Whenever you see the all caps, a lot of Bible translations do this. That's God's personal name. Pastor James talked about this a couple weeks ago. Yahweh, I am, right? That's the name first used when, he intri- when God introduced himself to Moses through the burning bush. That's, where he, that's his personal name. The personal name of the personal God who wants, us to, wants himself to be known by us. That's who was speaking then. Who was he speaking to? The nation of Israel. This was a, a group of people that God created. He called. He rescued. He loved them. Okay? That's who they were. We, they called him his covenant people, his promised people, his chosen people, that kind of language. And what was the purpose? What was the purpose of, his, of these laws? Well, again, it's here. I do not want you to act like the people in Egypt, that's where they came from, or the people of Canaan, where you are going. I, I do not want you to imitate those people. Why? Right here. I want life for you. I, I want a flourishing life. That's what God wanted for them. That's what God wants for us, a flourishing life. Life at its best. That's what he wants, has in mind for them. Now, one thing I can know for sure is I did not live in Egypt at the time that this was written, nor did I live in Canaan. And I'm pretty confident you didn't either. So we need to do the work of understanding what it meant to them before we understand what it means to us. Now, thankfully, we do have archaeological findings. And this is, it's fascinating if you want to geek out on this kind of stuff, but there are actually archaeological findings that have law codes for the other cultures around when this time lived, and interestingly, the, what we read in Torah followed a. It's similar to those other law codes in style and in format. Okay, so we know that okay, this came from that time period. However, what we read in Torah is distinctly different in content and approach. Similar in law in style and format, very wholly different in content and approach. God used the, the, what was going on at the time to introduce himself differently. There's a different way. He wanted the Israelites, the people of Israel, to be markedly different than the cultures around them. And he wanted them to be a light to the cultures around them to display the goodness of God. That's what God wanted for them. So that the way they lived would be enticing to these other nations rather than the other nations being enticing them. Now, they didn't, know, they didn't even hardly know who this God is, much less how to live the way He wanted them to live. And so they needed to be trained. They needed to be taught. So hence we have these laws and rules. And it's not that unlike parents training children. Really, when you think about it, in fact, that metaphor of parent training children is one that God Himself used in the Torah. Back at the burning bush in, in Exodus chapter 4, we read this. The Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him this, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So we can think of God's commands, the ones we find in the Torah, as God's house rules, if you will. House rules for his dearly loved children. Every parent, every household has house rules, right? Things like, say please and thank you. Pick up after yourself. Uh, no hitting or biting. And when mom's done with dad's rules, then he goes on, she goes, anyway. <laughs> all, all kidding aside, every, every house has household rules, and that is to shape the relationships or define the relationships, how we're going to interact in that house. And it shapes the character of the people in that house. That's what house rules are for. House rules also reflect a family's culture, where they come from, even the longer culture. Like in my house growing up, uh, we had an unwritten rule. Kids are to be seen and not heard, especially when company was over. So for my parents, respect, you know, when kids were respectful, that meant you were quiet. Again, especially when there were adults in the room. That's one way children showed respect for adults. Interestingly, that, that value of respect in a different house could have a different set of rules. I mean, I remember going over to other ki- pe- places, other, other houses where they were loud houses. And in those houses, if you weren't speaking up, that was a sign of disrespect. And I remember how foreign that was. Different rules, same purpose. So again, that's what we need to understand when we're reading here, is that it's a, it was written for a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. Understand that first and then say, okay, how can we apply that to us today? One more thing about these commands and in Torah is that they, if you notice when you're reading, God did not give all the commands to the Israelites at once. Did you notice that in your reading as you're reading through? I mean, if you didn't, you may just kind of go back through and consider that when God rescued the people out of Egypt, he took them across the Red Sea, through the first part of the desert, then they're at this uh, Mount Sinai or Mount Oreb, right? And then he gives them the first set of rules. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Now, pretty quickly, in fact, like almost immediately, they broke the commandments, right? And God's, God delivered some consequences, uh, and, and then he said, okay, I'm still here, um, but now here's some more rules for you to follow. And guess what? They didn't keep those either. More failure, more struggle, more consequences. And then God gave him some more rules and came with more failure, more struggle, more consequences over through the course of the story. That's, that was, the, that, that was the, the, all along we find that God, in the midst of doing that, he, he communicates his exasperation, of course, but he also continually reaffirms his love for them, and he continues to urge them, please follow my ways, follow my ways. I want you to have this life that I have for you. Please, he's constantly yearning and urging them to follow his ways, so that they may get in on the life that he promised. Again, sounds a lot like raising children. So now you may be thinking, great, Shane, now I understand Torah rules fit within the narrative of this story of God's chosen people. But why are they in the Bible, and why are they handed down to us today? That would be a good question. Especially when you want to know what to do with the strange ones. Because there are many of them that just, you kind of read them and go, what what do I do with that? You know, you're reading along, and you notice some of them are repeated. Maybe you've noticed that already. Uh, did you know there's only one command that's repeated three times? You'd think that'd be a pretty important one, right? Anybody know what it is? You should not, you shall not, do not boil a baby goat, a kid, in its mother's milk. What do you do with that one? I mean, right? I I'm not going to preach on that one today because I don't know what to do with it. You know, there's a lot of scholars, a lot of arguments about what to do with that. So how do we read these, especially when you come across ones that you just don't know quite what to do with? And so I just want to put kind of two ways to read, two lenses, if you will, to read through as you're reading along through this, what you can do with these. First of all, read Torah as an illustration of how rules and laws are not adequate to resolve the basic human condition. It's an example for us. These stories are there for us to, to learn something. In this case, that laws and rules, do, don't do this, do that, are not adequate for the basic human condition. Even as the number of laws increased, started with 10, and by the end of Deuteronomy, you're going to have 613 if you're counting. Okay? Even as the number increased, Israel's heart, their moral sensibility was so broken, they were incapable of perfectly keeping the law. They needed, like we need, something more than just don't do this and make sure you do that. Now, for the people of Israel, that's where the sacrificial system came in that Pastor Jay so wonderfully talked about last week, right? That was to cover their inability to perfectly keep the law, which introduces another problem. They weren't perfectly able to keep those laws either. They needed something more than that, as do we. So in the big story of the Bible, of course, the something more is found in the person of Jesus. He's, he's the one who was a part of the people of Israel. He was under the covenant of Torah, and he made it clear he, he didn't want to diminish the importance. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, we see this, or we hear this from him. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. That's The law of Moses there is Torah. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And one purpose of the law is to expose our inadequacy, to expose our brokenness, to expose our need for a Savior, someone to save us, our desperate need for God, in other words. Now, in the New Testament, in the letter to Galatians, the Apostle Paul wonderfully makes this connection for us. In Galatians chapter 3, we read this. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law, God's Torah. Did you know that? You're under a curse if you do not perfectly keep all those laws. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles. That's all of us that aren't of the nation of Israel. That brings all of us into the story. God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So Jesus accomplished the purpose of the law by perfectly obeying it himself. He lived the life you and I know we, can't, we, we need to live, but can't. He died the death you and I deserve because we cannot perfectly keep the law. He then rose from the dead, forever conquering death, which is the ultimate punishment for breaking for not keeping the law. He, he conquered that so that he could freely offer the free gift of life in his name. So when we put our trust in Jesus' ability to perfectly keep the law, when we put our trust in the payment he made on our behalf, when we receive forgiveness for our inability to keep the law, which the Bible calls sin, <laughs> We can have life in his name, and according to this, we get God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us, to constantly remind us to put our hope and our find our help in Jesus. So first, we read Torah to see a clear example of the impossibility of saving ourselves through our own effort. Instead, we put our trust in Jesus, the only one who perfectly lived all of God's commands. So there's a second purpose for reading Torah, a second lens to look through. And that is, as a seeker of God's heart and His wisdom, the same God, Yahweh, I am, that that led and loved Israel, leads and loves us today. So we can know that. So we can say, okay, where's the heart of God? What's the wisdom of God as we read this? Of course, since we didn't live back then, we don't fully know. I mean, may we never be one that says, I know exactly what that means. May we hold our interpretations loosely, okay? May we live as a community together and explore ideas about what those mean. Always believing that God's wisdom and God's heart is here for us to live the way that he longs for us to live to find the life that he's promised. This is also why reading through the entire Bible, like we're doing this year as a church, is so important. You get the extent, the full extent of, of seeing the different ways that uh, you see God's heart and his wisdom. Interestingly, when you're reading through the whole Bible, especially when you're reading the story of Jesus, you find that he interacts with people a lot about the law, about the Torah. In fact, there's several people that are introduced as experts in the law, and those are usually the ones God had the most trouble with. Because what they did is they took, this is what the law means, and then they wanted to use it to hammer other people with it, which is still true a lot today. So what did Jesus do when, he, when, this, when this one particular expert of the law tried to trap him, tried to use the law as a power tool to control, what, how did Jesus respond? Well, in Matthew 22, we see this. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is, the most command, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, to love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So according to Jesus, as we read through Torah, as we come across all these rules and commands, one thing we can know for sure, they are wanting to help us know better how to love God and how to love each other. That's what it's wanting for us. And so, with all that in mind, I want to take one particular category of the commands in their Bible as we read through Leviticus this week and to seek understanding about what they mean for us today. So, as you read through this week, you're going to find that outsized attention is going to be given to matters of sexuality. Now, several of the commands are going to sound kind of like strange to our ears in terms of what was important in how God communicated it. Uh, most of, what they, well, most of what they talk about is sex between family members. Beginning with Leviticus 18, verse 6. We see this. You must never have sexual relationships with a, relations with a close relative, for I am the Lord. And then if you read on in, in, in Leviticus 18, the next 12 verses, go in really specific detail about this relationship, with that relationship, with that relationship. You're thinking, by the time you're like, I, I think I got it with this one. So, again, why... Why would God have spent so much time delineating this very specific thing? And this is where it's so important to understand where they were, what was going on. They were in the middle of the desert, where they had come from, Egypt, where they were going, Canaan, uh, and, and so this is the context to think of it in. So where are they? They're in the desert, okay? They're living in tents, big extended families living under the same tent together. And so I think one thing that we can understand that God is doing here is delineating, setting a line between different types of love, different types of love. In this case, there's a line between what we might call sexual or married love and family love. Now, all the laws come out of the design that we find in the first couple chapters of Genesis, the creation account. And then when it comes to love and sexuality, there's one particular verse at the end of the creation account. You may be familiar with it. It says this in Genesis 2.24. This explains, and I'm not going into it, but that's everything in Genesis 2 up to that point. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. United into one, of course, is biblical language for sexual love. So what this verse is helping us know is that we leave father and mother, family love, uh, and then we have a different kind of love that we enter into uh, with a partner, with a, you know. And notice here it's it's, it's a man and his wife, or two are united into one. So it's defining sexual love or married love between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And so then we enter into these commands about okay, let's keep the sexual relationship in the boundary around this. So what God had in mind for us was sexuality and marriage being uniquely designed for one man and one woman for a lifetime. And that families flow out of that sexual union. So there's a line between married love and sexual love. And as you read on in the scriptures, you see there's other boundaries around this married love, sexual love as well. And so in verse 20, "...do not defile yourself by having sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife." Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. A man must not defile himself by having sex with an animal. And a woman must not offer herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it. This is a perverse act. Now, maybe, maybe not. This is, you may run into this in the course of your interactions with others. You know, in a lot of ways, no, I, why are they even talking about that? Boundaries around sexual relationships that were important for them to hear at that time. Why? Because the people of Egypt practiced these things. Because the people of Canaan practiced these things. What we can understand is that sexuality had become so thoroughly corrupted to a point where any sexual desire and the expression of that desire was celebrated and considered normal. So with these laws, God was orienting them back toward his original design. He was letting them know sex is a great gift, When you use it within, that's how I've designed it. Sex can be damaging and destructive when you use it outside of my design. Now, when we read these verses in the context, these commands in the context of the overall story narrative, we can only, not only learn God's intention, but also how Israel failed to keep these laws. Just like they failed to keep all the laws. And we are reminded that when it comes to our sexuality, every one of us, bankrupt in our to our cravings, without the heart transformation that comes in Jesus. These, sexuality is powerful, and we are bankrupt to it in so many ways, all of us, without the heart transformation available in Jesus. Now, for those of us who choose to follow Jesus and receive that transformation, the New Testament you know, affirms the boundaries that we see in the Torah. Both Jesus and Paul affirm the sexual boundaries. From beginning to end, the Bible communicates the heart of God and the wisdom of God inviting us to keep sexuality within the protective boundaries of a loving, loyal marriage relationship between a man and a woman for a lifetime. So what does it mean for us today? Well, we too live in a sex-saturated culture, that, you know, a culture that laughs at the idea of limits. Those who hold to high sexual standards are mocked, demeaned, or simply ignored as old-fashioned and out of touch. For those of us who put our hope in Jesus, the call is to live with a different sexual ethic than we find around us. And it applies to us in a similar way that Israel was called to live to a different ethic than the cultures around them. Now sadly, many self-professing Christians have walled themselves off from the idea of what I'll call sexual discipleship, bringing our sexuality under the desires and the design of God. Many of us have walled that off as if that has nothing to do with what God has in mind. I had a, a gentleman come to me asking for my help here recently, and And as we met together and we get talking and he's telling me about stories about how he goes to church and how he reads his Bible and how he wants to follow Jesus and how he has kids and he wants to, he wants to raise them up to know Jesus and believe in the Bible and he has his own business and and he wants to run his business in a way that's ethical and honors God and and treat his customers well. I mean, it was great. And I affirmed those things like, wow, it's excellent. How can I be of help? He says, well, I'm having problems in my sexual relationship with my girlfriend, no idea that that would also come under these other areas of, that he was really working to bring under the, the authority of God and the God, looking, seeking God's design in his ways. And he's not an outlier. <laughs> in my, especially in my role as a counselor and as a pastor, I regularly talk to self-professing Christians who are engaged in sexual relationships outside of marriage or who are married and have been engaging in infidelity. On top of that, Participation in pornography is nearly universal amongst self-professing Christians. Nearly universal. Now, if you think I'm overstating my case, think of the increasingly explicit sexual content on regular streaming channels that pretty much all of us have coming into our home Because of changing cultural norms, same-sex sexual behavior is also increasingly tolerated and celebrated by self-professing Christians, often under the clearly conceived mantra, love is love. Yes, love is love. But as we saw, there's delineations. Not all love is sexual love. That's not what God had in mind. So same-sex behavior is clearly outside the bounds of God's design for sexual love. Something affirmed by Jesus and the New Testament writers for those who follow him. Now, I, I don't intend this to be a message of condemnation. That's not what I'm here for. I, hopefully you've heard that, I, that we're after God, the life, a flourishing life that God's promises and he puts boundaries around these things, including our sexuality. This is about so much more, so much more than stop it, stop it, stop it. So much more. There's more going on with sex than just sex. God designed sex to bond a man and woman together, to demonstrate to the world around fidelity and faithfulness, to promote humility, honesty, and generosity. As a husband and wife, follow Jesus by persevering in sexual integrity. And I say those words on purpose, persevering in sexual integrity, because it's not always easy. But as they do so, their home, their marriage, becomes a life-giving place for raising the next generation. That is God's design. That's God's best for us that he wants for us. And sex is not intended to be merely functional either. God delights in your delight. I hope you get that as you read the Bible. God delights in your delight when you live life as he intended. The husband and wife who submits to God's ways and perseveres together in hope discovers their sexual joy can actually increase over time. And though in culture around us, you know, married sex is kind of cast aside as boring or irrelevant, interestingly, social science research affirms that long-term fidelity in a sexual relationship actually increases sexual pleasure. And yes, we can talk about that in church because... Because God delights in our delight, and when we live according to His ways, guess what? He lets us in on a flourishing life that He promises. And so, my friends, this week, as you read more, and there are a lot more, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Let's read them differently. First of all, let's allow them to expose, maybe directly or indirectly, how utterly incapable we are of keeping the laws perfectly. Utterly incapable, And let it affirm our desire to once again put our trust in Jesus, the only one who was able to perfectly keep him, who already paid the penalty for our inability. And we put our trust in him. We put our hope in him. And we reaffirm once again our desire to follow his ways, even when we fail to keep them. We affirm our desire. That's my desire. I want to follow you. And then secondly, as you read through these specific commands, ask yourself two questions. Or ask God. First of all, God what did you have in mind for the Israelites through these commands? And then ask yourself the question, what do you have in mind for me as I read these? Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, so much for your love for us. Sometimes we we read through your commands and it feels overwhelming. Sometimes we're reading through and we don't understand. Would you give us the perseverance we need? Would you give us the patience we need? Would you help us to see how this fits into your desire for us to know you, to love you, to receive love from you, and to follow your ways so that we might get into, this, into on the flourishing life you promise. This area of sexuality in particular, it's a tough one uh, with our, within ourselves and for those, of us, for those who aren't married to live a celibate life to, and to take those yearnings, those sexual desires, and to channel them into the good things that you call us to for those who are married, to to persevere through the ups and downs and all arounds of life and how sexuality fits into that and and to stay faithful to one another. For all of us, for where we failed, because we've all failed over and over, would we put our trust in you for the payment you made on our behalf, and would you give us the courage to continue to pursue your ways even when we don't understand. We pray all this believing and hoping in the name of Jesus. Amen.